The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. All right, so we are in lesson number four in our Bible History and Translations class. And um, I got to say that it's been, I mean, it's been something that I've really enjoyed going through myself personally. I know that I get the opportunity to spend hours and hours studying and I try and cram it all in and you guys kind of get like this whole lot at once. But for me, being able to like read and then be like, I didn't really get that. I get to reread it. Um, It's been a wonderful thing to go through. So it's something that I would encourage you to study on your own. Okay. It is, it's, it just increases your appreciation for what God has done in preserving his word for us and and your appreciation for those who have sacrificed um, so that we can have what we have in front of us as well. And so it's been a really helpful thing for me. Uh, so far in this class, we've talked about the Bible and what it is and what we believe about it and trying to make it very clear that the Bible is our standard for faith and practice. It ought to be the highest authority in all of our lives. And that's our goal. And, and, and our goal in this class is not in any way, shape, or form to attack the Bible, but rather to understand it better um, so that we can appreciate it more and we can speak about it with some knowledge and just to understand its history. We spent a week covering the canon of Scripture. We understood how we got the 27 books in the New Testament and the 39 in the Old Testament. So why we have 66 books in our Bible. And we saw that that was just something that God had supernaturally done as he worked in the lives of um, churches. And that ultimately it was not any group of people that said these are the books that are authoritative and these ones that aren't. It was just a group of people recognizing what God had already made very clear to the churches. Then we talked last week about just a really brief view of the history of the Bible from around the 5th century, where Jerome translated the Latin Vulgate, all the way up to Wycliffe's first English translation. And that Wycliffe was a wonderful man. He translated from the Latin um, into English, but it was the first time the English-speaking people had a Bible in their own language. And so I, I, got, I just got to say really quickly, it's very easy in all of this to get lost in the history. It's very easy to go on rabbit trails, and it's very easy to miss things that are very important. I was thinking about the lesson that we're going to talk about today, and there's probably about five or six people that are prominent um, in the lesson we'll speak about today. And I have a book that I was kind of, one of the books I was working from, it was a, a history of Christian biographies. And it was 6,000 biographies, a 1,200-page book. And I thought, you know what, we're, we're covering like one page of this 1,200-page book. And, and we're saying that these are the really important, incredible um, men of God that brought us the English Bible translations, the first English Bible translations. So that should just give you an idea of how little of this that we're able to look at even in this. But uh, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to just like trace the thread that that the English Bible came from, especially the ones that we use today. And then later in this class, what we'll do is we'll speak more about the specifics of all the modern translations and compare that to the King James Version and and just to understand what we're dealing with when we pick up our Bibles. But that'll be in in future classes. Today, we will still be in history. So this is not just a story of what men did. This is a story of what God was doing as he preserved his word. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the lesson. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can trust it, that it's um, authoritative, Lord, that you've given it to us to guide us and to to help us understand what we should believe and how we should live. 
and even more to understand um, how we can know you and who the God of heaven is. And God, I pray as we study the history today that you'd help it to encourage us and give us a greater appreciation for what we hold in our hands. And uh, Lord, I pray that as we celebrate communion service in a few moments, um, that it would just be a sweet time um, where we think deeply about what you've done for us and dying for us. And I, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged today and more motivated to uh, give you the glory that you deserve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll just jump back to last lesson as we begin with John Wycliffe and really quickly remember what he had done. John Wycliffe was the man who was called the Morning Star of the Reformation, and he created the first English Bible, or at least he kind of headed up the group that did, in 1382 and then a revision in 1385. And Wycliffe actually died of natural causes, which is amazing. As we go through this list, you'll find that just about everybody on the list ends up being killed for what they were doing. Um, Wycliffe didn't, and it's shocking that he didn't. But what's interesting is that the Pope was so infuriated by his teachings and the fact that he had translated the Bible in English that 44 years after Wycliffe died, the Pope ordered his bones to be dug up for them to be crushed and for that, then for them to be scattered in the river so that they'd never be found again. So, I mean, obviously what he had done, though he wasn't killed, um, his life had an incredible impact, so much so that the Pope, who was trying to keep the Bible in Latin out of the language of the common people, felt it necessary to dig up his bones and crush them and scatter them. So now we'll move on to a man named John Huss. Uh, John Huss was a follower of Wycliffe. And he actively promoted Wycliffe's ideas. And, I mean, Wycliffe's Bible was all hand copies. There were thousands of them made, but they took a year to make. Huss also believed what Wycliffe believed, in that the Bible should be in the language of the common people. And he opposed the tyranny of the Roman church and the fact that they were threatening, threatening anyone that didn't have a Latin Bible with death. He was against that, and so he, he was an incredible promoter of getting the Bible out. So what Wycliffe had done, he tried to disseminate it and spread it as much as he possibly could. Um, but what's interesting about Huss's life, and I guess the reason I included him on here, is because in 1415, Huss was burned at the stake, and they actually used some of Wycliffe's manuscripts, some of the copies that they had made, um, as kindling for the fire that burned him. But while he was at the stake, his last words were, In 100 years, God will raise up a man who calls for reform that cannot be suppressed. And that was in 1415. So if you know your Christian history a little bit, you know that in 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis on, on Halloween evening um, to the church doors at the Wittenberg, Germany. And so Huss here was about two years off. <laughs> it's pretty amazing that, that he's going to the stake and he's dying. and He's, he's just saying that 100 years from now, God's going to raise somebody up that's going to reform the church and it won't be stopped. And 102 years later, God does that. Um, moving on, the printing press that was uh, invented by Johann Gutenberg just did incredible things for the dissemination of the Bible. Um, prior to that, Wycliffe's Bible, it would take a year for one person to make a copy and it could be burned in just moments. And that's what happened very often. I think there's um, two copies of, y- of Wycliffe's Bible that are still in existence today and they say that they're worth millions of dollars. 
Um, but all of a sudden, now we have this printing press invented in 1440. And what's interesting is the very first book, full book, ever to be printed on the printing press was um, Gutenberg's Latin version of the Bible. And that was kind of just a foreshadow of things to come because the printing press for years was used in incredible ways to um, make copies of the Bible and copies of Protestant works that really, I mean, a lot of people think that without the printing press, the Reformation would have been impossible. Because how do you get this message out when when every time you're speaking out loud, um, people are trying to kill you? Well, the only way you do it is you get books into people's hands. You get people to be able to read the Bible for themselves. And you allow God through the Holy Spirit to work in their hearts. And that's, that's exactly what happened during the Reformation. And a lot of that was because of the printing press. Moving on to a man named Erasmus. Uh, Desiderius Erasmus was a Roman Catholic priest and a humanist scholar. And if you've been at the church for a while, you've probably heard Pastor tell a story about a man who had Confederate pants, this right, and a rebel shirt. Union. A union shirt? Okay, so you, you guys heard the story and that what happens to him? He's shot twice, right? That's kind of the, the life of Erasmus. He was too Catholic for Protestants and too Protestant for Catholics. And so he had many Catholics that were just enraged at his theology because it seemed like he was leaning toward Protestant theology. But when you took somebody like Martin Luther um, and, and compared his beliefs with Erasmus's beliefs, Erasmus wasn't willing to leave the Catholic Church completely. He thought it could be reformed from within, and so the Protestants thought very poorly of Erasmus. However, Erasmus in his life did incredible things that um, furthered the process of uh, having a really good English Bible translation. Um, He had identified problems with the Latin Vulgate. He had seen that the Latin Vulgate, just like any book that's copied, had many mistakes had crept into it. And so he he started um, comparing some older versions with newer versions. And um, some of the things that he said about the the people who was copying the Latin Vulgate are really funny. They're they're, um, half-witted, barely educated men who are trying to, to make these copies. And so he thought that the Latin Vulgate needed an update. And that was his original goal, to update the Latin Vulgate. However, as he did that, he decided that he would also um, tr- work in the Greek. He'd work in the original languages. And so he was, his goal was to create this Latin version that was superior to what the Vulgate was at this time. But ultimately, what he did is he created a Greek uh, version, and his goal was to have the Greek manuscript beside his Latin version so that anybody could could compare the two and see that he had done a good translation. And if they were to compare the current Latin Vulgate, they would see that the, the translation from the original was a poor translation. But what became really popular was actually the Greek part of the manuscript. That's the thing that, that really had an incredible effect on the future of Christianity because um, it was Martin Luther that um, took Erasmus's uh, Greek text, which is the, the basis of the received text. Anybody heard of the received text before? Probably have. Textus Receptus. The Textus Receptus is what the King, I guess the base, base text for the King James Version. And he was the one that started compiling the Greek manuscripts. And so what he would do is he would get whatever manuscripts he could get his hands on. Uh, scholars think that he had between six and ten manuscripts. And so he, now he has... Um, six to ten copies 
of Greek manuscripts. Not all of them are complete, so some of them might be missing parts here and there, but they're very old manuscripts, and he's using them, and he's trying to put together one manuscript that will be a complete and full manuscript. And so this is what he did, and this is, was probably his biggest contribution um, to the Reformation, though he wasn't really for the Reformation, because, like I said, Martin Luther came along, he took this Greek text, and he put it into German. And that was in 1922. And so, as you know, in 1517, uh, Luther nailed his 95 Thesis of Contention on the church doors in Wittenberg, Germany. Okay, so this is the this is the marks the beginning of the Reformation. Luther, who was a priest, has now decided that the Roman Catholic Church cannot be reformed from within, and so he's kind of going against it publicly. This is the beginning of the Reformation, and in 1521 he was called to the Diet of Worms, or the Diet of Worms, how it's spelled. Um, and it was a council that was put together by, the, by um, the Catholic leadership with the goal of martyring him, with the goal of killing him. That they were going to condemn him to death there. And when he was asked to recant, this was his reply. And I actually have this quote on the wall of my office. He said, Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot... And I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience would be neither right nor safe. God help me, here I stand, I can do no other. Just a pretty bold statement. It's scripture and it's plain reason, and that's what he was going to base his faith, base his life on. And it's a a wonderful place to be. Um, And so... Somehow he survived that council and he went into hiding and it was during his time in hiding that he got a hold of Erasmus's um, Greek New Testament as well as Erasmus's updated Latin version and from there he translated Luther's German Bible in September of 19 or 1522. Now we're moving on to the man who is called the father of the English Bible. Is any of this like making any sense? I'm, I, there's, a, there's so much to cover and it's really hard. But what I'm trying to do is just give you the thread. Okay. So Tyndale might be the most influential man in all of English Bible translating in all of history. Okay, what William Tyndale do, did was just an incredible feat. There had been no new English translation for 130 years before Tyndale in the 16th century. Many European languages had received their translation during this time. Uh, the Protestant Reformation, uh, all of a sudden, all of these people desired to have the Word of God in their language. And so many European countries did that, um, but, the, but English did not yet have one. And so William Tyndale was just a brilliant man. At the age of 16, in 1512, he received his bachelor's from Oxford University. Uh, At age 19, he received his master's. Uh, He was a scholar and a genius. He was fluent in eight languages, and it was said that any person would think that any one of those languages was his 
uh, natural language, the, the language he was born with. Um, many people said that he was a scholar in eight languages, which just meant that he was, he was such a master of all of eight languages that he could speak on any topic about anything. He was just brilliant. And so it's amazing how God raises up people with certain gifts and abilities at certain times. He certainly was a very gifted man. And he was unable to convince the Roman Catholic Church to allow him to translate the Bible in English. Surprise, surprise. And so it was said of William Tyndale that he was a man who sung only one note. And that note was his desire to see the Bible in the language of the common people. That's what he was, his whole life was about. Get, finding a way to get the Bible. And so he was, he was working on the church for a while. When he couldn't get the church, he had to go into hiding. He ended up uh, in Germany and he stayed with, for a time, Martin Luther and used the same copy of Erasmus's uh, New Testament to translate the first English Bible, the first English Bible from the original languages. And this was the first English New Testament. And so in 1531, he's in hiding and King Henry VIII, he's important in a little bit. So King Henry VIII sends a letter to where he is and says, mercy will be extended if you return to England. And this was William Tyndale's response. He said, I assure you, if it would stand by the king's gracious pleasure to grant only a bare text of the scriptures, and by bare text of the scriptures, he meant we want a text of the scriptures, it does not have to have any explanation because a lot of places we're doing is they would have a text of scripture and then they would have explanatory notes below. And the explanatory notes were very often anti-Roman Catholicism. And so what he was saying is, I want to put together just, it's just a translation. It's not going to push my theology in any way, shape, or form. The only thing it will do is show people in the common language what the Bible actually says. So he says, this is, I want a bare text of scriptures to be put forth among the people I shall immediately make faithful promise to never write another book. Okay? Not only were uh, Bibles in common languages people were being burned at the stake for, but they were actually being burned for having copies of books written by Protestants. And so Tyndale had, was a prolific um, writer, and he had written many books, and so people were already being killed for reading his books. So he's saying, I won't write another book if you will promise that we will be able to make a bare um, text of the scriptures in common language. He says, Not abide two days in these parts after the saying. So as soon as you say it, I will leave. But immediately to repair unto his realm, and there most humbly to submit my body at the feet of his royal majesty, offering my body to suffer what pain or torture, yea, what death his grace will. I'm willing to die, suffer, whatever it takes, if you'll promise me this one thing. So this translation may be obtained. Well, The king refused, and Tyndale never went home again. He, in Germany, found uh, Martin Luther and Erasmus's text, and so he used that as his source. And in 1526, he released the first copy of William Tyndale's New Testament. Um, It was the first time the New Testament had been translated into the English language directly from the Greek and it was a phenomenal translation. He updated it five times, and it's the 1534 version that if you ever hear people speaking about Tyndale's New Testament, that's the one that they'd be referring to. Um, it is a wonderful uh, translation, wonderful English, uh, easy to understand for common people, 
And one scholar of the Red said that he turned good Greek into good English. That's, that's the goal, right? Um, and so what they did is they would take these, they would print, the printing press, they would print copies of the Bibles, and then they would send them into England in bales of cotton and sacks of flour. And what's funny is that um, Tyndale was actually making some money, and all of the money that he made, he would put into um, creating more Bibles. And so people would pay great sums of money to have these Bibles uh, brought into the country illegally, and they would have their own copy, and they would read it. But the, his, his number one purchaser was the English government. It was the king and the king's men. Because what they were doing is they were trying to purchase all the Bibles they could get their hands on so they could burn them. But they didn't realize what was happening is every time that they bought a Bible, Tyndale would receive some money that he could put into printing more Bibles. And so because of the fact that the um, king's army was buying so many Bibles, he was able to print a lot more than he would have been otherwise. And so it was, it's just neat how that worked out. But um, so at this point, it was impossible to stop the flow of Bibles into the country. Um, just there were so many people. However, um, Tyndale was betrayed by a man named Henry Phillips. Um, he was an Englishman, and he had, he had apparently befriended Tyndale, but he ended up um, having him kidnapped, and, incar- and he was incarcerated for 500 days in uh, a prison. And then eventually, on October 6, 1536, he was strangled and then burned at the stake. And so that's age 42. And so that's the end of, of William Tyndale's life, but his legacy and what he did just had, I don't think you could measure the impact of what he did on how that affected um, the spread of Christianity, especially in England. Yeah. Yes. On Tyndale's um, translation, how much, what percentage of that was used in the King James? Because it was huge, like 60% or so of what he translated. Yep. Um, actually, more than that, um, the scholar named um, J. Isaacs said his simple directness, his magical simplicity of phrase, his modest music have given an authority to his wording that has imposed himself on all later versions. Nine-tenths of the King James Version is his, and the best is still his. And and then he was saying nine-tenths. The actual amount is supposed to be around 76% of the Old Testament is still his wording, and 83% of the New Testament is still his wording. And what happened is it wasn't that the King James translators just used what he wrote. Um, The King James translators were using all of the English Bible translations that were available to them, as well as the Greek and the Latin. So the King James translators were trying to use everything they could possibly get their hands on. But every English Bible translation after Wycliffe was so heavily influenced by, um, sorry, after Tyndale, was so heavily influenced by Tyndale that they were copying the same thing. So 90% of what he had written got into them. And so if you were to take like a, a, a part of the Bible that you just... As soon as you hear it, you know where it's from. You know the, the story of Christmas from Luke chapter 2. Most of the, the wording that is so unique to the King James there is originally Tyndale's wording. That's why it says the best is still his. Um, he created many words that we think of like peacemaker. We think of that as a normal word, but that was not a word before Tyndale, and he just thought that's what needed to be there um, in the Sermon on the Mount. And so um, just unbelievably influential as he, or as he, before he was strangled, um, his last words were, O Lord, open the king of England's eyes. 
So this was the, the King Henry VIII that ultimately put him to death. Um, King Henry VIII is the next person on our list here. And he is, the way that his life worked out is fascinating. It's fascinating to the secular world. They keep making movies about him and, and Mary and Anne Boleyn and, and all those movies are this King Henry VIII. Um, the impact that he had on the church and how he, they split from Roman Catholicism was fascinating. And the impact he had on Bibles was fascinating. Just an, uh, an incredible man and not in a good way in any way, shape, or form. He is not, I mean, he's included on this list, but he's a villain that we, was used by God to further his purposes. He's absolutely, he did a lot of great things for very selfish reasons. And so here, um, for many years, King Henry had joined with the Roman Catholic Church to hunt down and kill any person who wanted to translate the Bible into the common language of the people. So he was responsible, ultimately, for William Tyndale's uh, martyrdom. But King Henry wanted a divorce from Lady Catherine. He wasn't having any male heirs, and he kind of took a fancy to this girl named Anne. Um, He was probably already having an affair with Anne's sister Mary, um, but... Anne was much younger than his wife, and, um, and so he wanted to marry Anne, but the Pope refused. And he tried to come up with a really interesting way of using Leviticus chapter 20, um, where it, it speaks about um, the fact that she was married to it, Catherine was married to his brother at one point, and so even though they'd been married for a number of years, the marriage, the marriage shouldn't have ever been valid. And so he brought this argument to the Pope, and the Pope said, no, that's not, that's not right. And so, um, ultimately, in order to get this annulment, he forced England, all of England, to leave the Roman Catholic Church, and he began his own church. This is where we get the Anglican Church, the Church of England. And he, at that point, made himself the supreme head of the church and the representative of God on earth. And so, basically, he started his own church and made himself the Pope. And, and it's, I mean, the, <laughs> absolutely, it sounds completely legitimate. Um, and one of the first things he did when he became the head of the church is um, he hired people to translate the Bible into English. And many people think the only reason he did this is because he knew how much the Roman Catholic Church didn't want it done. And so just despite them, he's like, I'm just going to get somebody to do it. And so um, he hired a, a man named... Um, Miles Coverdale. And so we should back up a little bit and give you Miles Coverdale's history. He was a follower of William Tyndale. So he worked a little bit with William Tyndale on Tyndale's translation. And he had actually came up with his own Bible, the Coverdale Bible, where he took all of what Tyndale had done in the New Testament. And Tyndale had also done the, the Pentateuch of the Old Testament and I think one or two other books he had handwritten but hadn't been printed yet. He took all of Tyndale's work and then he just kind of finished it. But he finished it from the Latin. So he didn't finish it from the original text. However, he's the one, the, Co- the Coverdale Bible in 1535 is the very first full English translation. So the complete Bible. Um, Tyndale had just done the New Testament primarily. Then there's another man named um, John Rogers, but he always called himself when he was writing um, Thomas Matthews. And so the Matthews Bible is the very first um, full Bible from the original languages. And so Coverdale and Matthew worked together a little bit, and they were kind of both hired to publish what's called the Great Bible in 1539. 
Um, and the Matthews Bible is actually a pretty good translation, but the problem with the Matthews Bible is the notes. Um, a lot of times he kind of stepped far beyond where he probably should have been with the notes. And so he, he had, uh, for example, in 1 Peter 3, 7, he put under the notes if, this is speaking of wives submitting to husbands, he said, And if she be not obedient and helpful unto him, endeavoreth, he endeavoreth to beat the fear of God into her, that she may be compelled to learn her duty and do it. All right? So it was actually called, a lot of people during that time referred to the Matthews Bible, which un, it was a good translation, but because of that, it got referred to as the wife beater's Bible. And, um, which is actually a good thing because it meant that Christians during that day saw that as a very negative thing. And, and so they didn't share his belief in what First Peter 3, 7 was trying to teach. Um, and so uh, the Coverdale Bible and the Matthews Bible, neither one of them were um, circulated as much as Tyndale's uh, just because Tyndale's was a superb translation and they had just kind of, they were just adding to it a little bit and updating a little bit, but um, with Matthew's Bible, the notes made it so that a lot of people didn't want it. And um, Coverdale, it was the quality of the translation fluctuated quite a bit. And so now um, Miles Coverdale um, is hired by King Henry and, and he publishes the Great Bible. And so this is the first English Bible that is authorized by public use. Once it was made, it was distributed to every church in England and it was chained to the pulpits. And every church was also provided a person who was trained in reading this Bible. So not only did you have to have the Bible there, but now you actually had a reader that would come and they would read the Bible in the English language so that people could understand it. And it would seem that Tyndale's last wish had been granted where he asked for King Henry's eyes to be opened, though they weren't granted in the way that maybe Tyndale wanted it to be. Now the Bible was in the hands of English-speaking people. Um, the Great Bible is known as the Great Bible, not because it was so great, but because of it, it was so big. Um, it was about 15 inches tall, so you, or 14 inches tall. So it would sit on top of the pulpit this big, and then they'd, they'd flip from page to page. The pages were th- so thick, and there was just very little writing on every page. So the Great Bible. Certainly not a Bible you could carry around. The successor to King Henry was Edward, and after Edward was Queen Mary. And if you've heard of Queen Mary, you know she's also called Bloody Mary. And she might have been the most evil, one of the most evil women to ever be alive. Um, She killed an insane number of people in very cruel ways. And she became the next big obstacle to the printing of the English Bible because her goal was to return the Anglican Church to Rome. So she tried to to repair, to make amends, to get the church back under Roman rule, but it didn't work. She also burned uh, Thomas Matthew, which is Rogers, who had helped translate the Great Bible, and just done that previous king, and now she's burning him at the stake for the crime of being a Protestant, and she burned many, many people for the crime of Protestantism. And we're talking like, like hundreds and hundreds of people for just because they were Protestants. So what happened is, uh, in the 1550s, many people began to leave England. They would flee England, and they would flee to places like Switzerland, because in Switzerland, the Protestant Reformation had kind of taken control of the country, 
and uh, that's where Calvin was. And so the church at Geneva, Switzerland, was very sympathetic to the former refugees. What ended up happening is the church of Geneva determined to produce a Bible that would educate their families while they continued in exile. So now they, they kind of lost what they had there. All the, all the Bibles are chained to the pulpits. There's maybe a few still going around, but they decided, you know what? We're here in Switzerland. Let's take this time and let's create a really good English translation of the Bible. And I got to tell you, I, from my studying, one of the most amazing things to me has been just learning more about the Geneva Bible. Because I, I don't think that Christians and Protestant Christians today understand how good of a translation that the Geneva Bible was and what an impact that had. We, we think of... Um, the King James is like the, the Bible that really made the impact in early Christianity um, it, during the Reformation. But it, it wasn't the King James. It was the Geneva Bible. It was the Geneva Bible that was used by English reformers. It was the Geneva Bible that was the first Bible used by um, the early Baptist churches. It was the Geneva Bible that was brought to uh, North America first um, to, by Puritans to start churches here. And so Geneva Bible for 100 years was just a, a wonderful Bible translation. This was the work of a man named William Whittingham, and he was a Protestant English exile in Geneva. The New Testament was completed in 1557, and the final whole Bible was done in 1560. Um, It was the very first Bible to add numbered verses to the chapters so that you could reference specific passages. So when we look at our Bibles, do you understand that... um, the original Bible would have, it's, it's kind of neat how much easier it's become. The original Bibles would have had no punctuation and no spacing and everything would have been in capital letters. So you would have just had a constant flow of letters all along with no punctuation. You, you can imagine what that would look like. And then eventually small letters are introduced and punctuation is introduced. And then eventually chapters are introduced. And it's the Geneva Bible that introduces um, verse headings. So it was a very easy Bible to read. If you've ever seen the old English font on your computer, it was very similar to that. So yes, I know it's not as easy to read as maybe Times New Roman, but it's still a lot easier to read than a lot of the fonts that they were using back then. And, and it was, um, the font was pretty small, and so the Bible was created so that it could be very easily taken from place to place and kept as a personal Bible. And so the, the Geneva Bible just kind of completely transformed the way the Bibles were done, allowed it to be copied in huge numbers and very easily concealed and, and brought with you on your person wherever you went. Um, it was the Bible that William Shakespeare quoted from, and he quoted hundreds of times from the Geneva Bible. Uh, for a hundred years, it was the number one choice for English-speaking Christians. And between 1560 and 1644, there was at least 144 editions of this Bible published which is just they, they, they published a certain number of them and then they would need to publish more because they were gone. People wanted them so much. That happened 144 times. Um, <clears throat> if you look at the, the King James Bible, you will realize that they were uh, influenced more by the Geneva Bible than by anything else in front of them. It was over 90% of the King James Version is direct copy from the Geneva Bible. Now, I mean, Geneva Bible was over 90% from Tyndale's in the New Testament. So you got a lot of that happening. Um, but it was just a, a wonderful, wonderful tra- translation. Um, it was the first Bible taken to America. 
It was the Bible of the Puritans. It was the Bible of the early pilgrims. It was the Bible of the Protestant Reformation. And it's unfortunate that I think a lot of um, Christians today just aren't aware of what an impact the Geneva Bible had on, on our Bible today. All right? I know I've given you a lot today. Are there any questions? Because I don't, I don't want to, because we're, we're kind of getting to the point where after the Geneva Bible, the next thing that happens is the King James Bible, next big thing. And I don't want to just jump into that. I, I want to start that now, and then I'd rather start it next week. The KJV completely replaced Geneva Bible, or did they still print the Geneva Bible? Or um, for, about, for about 50 well, the last, the last printing of the Geneva Bible was 1644, oh, okay. and the King was 1611, so about 33 years after it was last. So probably for about 50 years after, it was still the primary Bible used by English-speaking people, even after the King James was translated. Um, it, when the King James was translated, it wasn't immediately accepted by everybody. And we'll get into the history of the King James, because it is kind of surprising. There's a lot of things about its history that is interesting. It wasn't immediately received by people well. Yep. Is Reformation a more like a, a reformed celebration of something? It, it, well, it's, it's the beginning. It marks the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. So, it, I mean, it's kind of one of those things that you always want to pick a day because it's easy to remember a day where something starts. Certainly before Martin Luther, there was many pre-reformers that came and they, that they were... Um, fighting for the Bible and the common language of the people, that they were fighting for um, salvation by faith alone apart from works. Um, but it was kind of maybe at that point that we can point to and say that's where the movement gained a lot of followers, and that's where it really started to turn around. And from that point on, it was kind of like it just grew. So, yeah. Kim? Um, I think you should do this lesson again, our major review on it, because this is for me... This part of this is where we grew up in a church that was really King James only, but where I felt like it kind of explained things much more clear to me. Okay. And um, I just think that like this is huge. Well, we we have time. We can do five minutes right now. Review. <laughs> I mean, I wish there were more people here. Yeah. This because for you going to the next one, this is just so good. Parts, breaking everything it, it, gives, I, like, it gives you a real um, understanding of just the effort that was put into this and the people that sacrificed for it. And, yeah. and translation. About, about the goal was to put the Bible in the common man's language yeah. so that every plot in England would be able that, to quote scripture. Yeah, that was Tyndale that said that. And how Satan attacked. Yeah, absolutely. At every turn. But I thought it was so fascinating how King Henry VIII was actually the one that like really pushed to have a Bible only because he wanted to hurt the Catholic Church. Crazy guy. All right. Thank you all for coming today. See you in 15 minutes.